I guess I will pull it up on YouTube. Hey, what's up, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bomb. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer. And uh, look who we have here. We have Jake Adams from Reef Builders. Welcome, Jake, man. What's up? Thanks for having me, Keith. Yeah, I really appreciate uh, you uh, taking the time out here. And you're live from the Reef Builders studio. So let me uh, let me just do a little intro for you, Jake, here in terms of folks that might not know who Jake Adams is. Jake has been in the hobby since the mid-90s and has worked on the retail side of the marine aquarium trade for more than 10 years. He has a bachelor's degree in marine science and has been the managing editor of reefbuilders.com since 2008. Jake is interested and well immersed in every facet of the marine aquarium hobby from the concepts of the technology to rare fish and exotic corals. He has shared his knowledge and passion for the hobby by speaking at many reef club and marine aquarium events and by writing articles for aquarium publications across the globe. His primary interest is in corals, which Jake pursues in the aquarium hobby, obviously with the studio, as well as diving the coral reefs of the world. So Jake, man, that's, um, that's quite a, uh, a background, and I'm, I've always been a big fan of yours, and you're a wealth of knowledge, so we really appreciate you, you um, being on the live stream. I see we have a, a lot of people that already uh, tuned in, so welcome, folks, and Feel free to um, ask away in terms of questions with uh, with Jake and I, and I have a whole bunch of questions myself as uh, per usual on this show. But uh, we would love to take input from the uh, from the viewers. So I will do my best to kind of keep track of the uh, the scrolling chat box on the uh, on the screen here. But uh, sounds good. Yeah. So so Jake, man, you've um, you've been in the hobby since the mid '90s. How did it all start for you? Is, what's oh, what's the story? Well, mom came home with a 30-gallon tank and three white bail tails and three black moors and almost no information from the local fish store. And within six months, we had like 22 freshwater tanks throughout the house. 22? And yeah, you know, just like <laughs> this fish doesn't get along with that fish, so we need a different tank for that fish. And some of them were rubber containers and... Um, I still remember my first saltwater tanks. I set up a 29 and a 30 next to each other at the same time with an undergravel filter. Everything was air driven. And I still remember my first piece of live rock. I pointed to the one that had the Aptasia on it because I wanted it. I wanted the thing. It's got life. <laughs> um, but I think the first real reef tank uh, we bought off the trader. So it was like a used tank, 75 gallon. Had a Red Sea Berlin protein skimmer, MagDrive 5, a couple Maxi Jets. I don't remember what the lights started with, but it came with like VHO and IceCat ballast. And I had it back then. It was really complicated to set up. And I still remember just like always, I was always working on that tank to try to make things work better. You know, like, for example, I, I had the mag drive as the rear turn pump, and I thought it would be super clever by pumping it directly to the hang-on-back skimmer, not realizing that all the head pressure was just totally killing my air intake. And, uh, yeah, just I, I love the, the the fishing corals I had in there. I always – Yeah, you got a little guess. She knows somehow. <laughs> she, somehow she knows when, like, I'm on camera. Um, I had a bubble coral – I had a saddleback clownfish. I had a purple tang. Way, 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 way too much live rock. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. I would say I would say that's the start. 
So did you have any mentors back then? I mean, how did you kind of like know what you were doing or did you just kind of like learn by doing? Did you kind of make some of those uh, beginner mistakes and, and learn from those? Um, I mean, I guess the answer would be all of the above. Um, I don't know. I didn't reference the books as much because especially the saltwater aquarium hobby, things change so fast that and the, you know, the moment you send a book to publication, like there's new chips, new tricks. So I read piles of magazines, just piles and piles. And just, I don't know if I really learned anything from reading, but combination of what was said in the books what was said in the magazines and there was no forums at the time you know and, and just actually working on my tanks um, but i don't think i really learned anything because the information wasn't set in stone right right no one explained to you it was really hard back then to explain what alkalinity was it was. I think it was like five years before I realized, like, oh, the corals are made of calcium <laughs> and carbonate and alkalinity and buffering capacity and carbonate is all the same thing. And then you need a little dash of magnesium in there to glue it all together. Um, so it's it really doing, you know, and there was just everything back then was new. Everything back then was discovery. Right. You know. Yeah, I mean, when I first got into the hobby um, 25 plus years ago, you know, I, I, I picked up a few books. Julian, uh, Julian and, and Dillenbach's uh, book was one of the books I picked up. There was a couple of uh, iconic books that I think are still great reads out there that um, are certainly worth anybody's while to um to take in but and it's a different world today. Like you said, I mean, it's it's completely different. You've got you've got uh, forums and um, you've got social media, you know, there's a lot of information out there. And I guess that's the question is for somebody coming into the hobby, how do you kind of sift through what's the good stuff in terms of the information and, and maybe what's not so uh, good? I mean, it's funny because, you know, I make my, my living creating content online and writing articles and blog posts. The first thing I tell people when they want to set a saltwater tank up, I tell them not to read anything. <laughs> Do not go online because otherwise I'm going to spend 95% of my time explaining to you all these little things that you don't need to know. You know, everything you need to know about a saltwater tank, I can write down for you in an index card in like five minutes. <laughs> Pretty much just the fundamentals. Right. Um, so for, for, for a beginner, I mean, it's probably the easiest thing to do is, you know, uh, find a, a lead pony. You know, find a, a pony car and, and, and just follow through those footsteps. And, you know, I, if you see the end result that looks good, stick with one person and kind of ape what they're doing. There's just almost no reason to, to read <laughs> or learn until you're like, until you have a base of experience, like a, just a small, let's say three, six, 12 months of experience. Everything you read is not going to make sense. You're not going to be able to sift through that information if you just dive into the deep end. And um, it's even it's worse with online stuff, you know, uh, because through, you, you, someone might read about something on three different three or four different sources, and you know they got that self confirmation bias. But those three or four people, they were referencing one person. You know, and so misinformation spreads like wildfire. Useless techniques, for some reason, people just really, really go for them. You know, I don't know why. 
Yeah, you know, you said something <clears throat> that was the exact same thing that um, Mike Paletta said on the show last week, and that is find a mentor. You know, find somebody to kind of hit your wagon to, and that, yeah. that had you know has had success, and try to yep. follow the uh, you know that person's lead in terms of what they do in the hobby. I would say that applies to you know ten to fifty-ish gallon tanks. You know, just a super basic saltwater aquarium with invertebrates, but. Once it gets a little bit larger and you have different mineral demands and you have higher concentration of corals, fish, and inverts, um, you want to have that base of experience. So you want to know which direction you're going to go. Am I going to go with calcium reactor? Am I going to go full Berlin style with no sand and a calc reactor? Or three, three or multi-part dosing, yada, yada. So let's let's switch gears a little bit here, Jake. So these, these are certainly interesting times with covid going on how how has um covid impacted what you have done and um then let's just kind of like talk about the industry in terms of what you see you know how the industry has been impacted by covid and potentially any lasting effects um in the future oh man that is a thick slice of cheese to cut <laughs> into it dude covid has been such a double-edged sword for the general aquarium hobby and probably like even like every home-based hobby from brewing beer to house plants to freshwater tanks to snakes anything that you can do and enjoy at home has benefited um, obviously we're missing the conferences we're missing the community you know I find myself calling two or three people almost every day just so I can talk reef to somebody, you know, <laughs> and bitch about the coral prices. Um, so every store that I know, every business that I know that I deal with, which is almost everybody, everybody's rocking, man. Right. The, 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 where, where a typical reef store, you know, would have, let's just say 75% of their value locked up in corals and frags and 25% fish, now they're selling out of every fish, almost weekly, you know, and it's every store. On the one hand, it's it's really good, you know, obviously for our general industry and for our local markets, but the only thing I don't like about it, because I'm a reef snob, is that every company is doing well. So you have, um, you know, the people who aren't quarantining their fish, the people who are overpricing corals and the companies who are selling products today that were released eight years ago that don't represent even not even I'm not even not even bleeding edge, but like current edge. Mm -hmm. Those companies are thriving, too. And so the only downside I see is some of the, you know, mean fish store owners are going to continue to do well for a few years. Some of the the, the cheap Chinese products are going to – everybody is just rocking, right? There is no natural selection happening in the market. So that's that's the good and the bad. And, you know, definitely like the livestock prices are through the roof. If you look at the headlines, right, I'm not going to – no one's going to read an article I write about, hey, check out this place. They have – $10 corals, $10 coral classics. You can buy a whole tank full of corals for 200 bucks. No one's going to read that, right? They want to know that the price of yellow tanks has shot up to $500. Yeah. 
And so yeah, so it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, I saw like pricing for yellow-eyed colt tangs now is around $400. I'm like, how did that happen? How did that happen? A yellow-eyed colt tang is now $400. You know what? I have 22 yellow tangs. I have eight Tommany tangs. I have one white tail tang. I have tons of tangs. I, I love bristle tooth tangs. I absolutely do. <clears throat> but I've never, for some reason, I see a coal tang and I'm just like, nah. <laughs> I don't know why. That was a, I'm sure that's that, a utility fish for me, you know, and, and it was not something that, um, it's not a fish that I would invest that kind of money in for sure. I mean, there's, there's other fish that I would absolutely rather spend that kind of money on, but it's kind of frightening in terms of what's going on with the prices. I'm, I'm not worried about it. You know, having, Oh my God, I, I have my magazine over here. Uh, actually, you know what? Let me yeah. yeah. Go I'll, for I'll it. talk about something. Yeah. Yeah. Hang in there, folks. Jake's grabbing a magazine. Somebody made a comment about your kick-ass music on your channel. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I would not make reef aquarium videos if I didn't have access to really good royalty-free music to use on the videos. But here's here's kind of I think this is going to harken back to what's happening in the industry, right? So this is a freshwater and marine aquarium magazine from 1992. I used to subscribe. I I, I went back and just bought a few issues that I, I knew had some good stuff in it, but. It, first of all, it's 200 pages. I went to, to sleep one night, you know, went to bed thinking, oh, I'm just going to, you know, just mosey through this thing in 20, 30 minutes. It took me an hour, even looking at the ads. And there's so many things that are striking. But one of the biggest ones is the editorial is talking about aquarium bands from different places. Right when I got in the industry is right when Florida shut down the collection or the harvest of wild rock. So after that, you had to farm it yourself. And it's like 30 years later, the editorial is still talking about the exact same issues, the same issues. Yeah. And uh, I'm not worried about it because the market really does have a way of sorting itself out. Like I said, the urgency of bands is something that I was born into in this industry. And I just... At the end of the day, there's always new corals. There's always new places that can open up. And we are fortunate enough now, maybe not so much on the fish side, because it's very hard to raise saltwater fish that isn't a clownfish or a dottyback. Um, we're very fortunate that, like, you can find almost any coral right now, you know, that, that's culturable, right? You're not going to get right. frags of lobos or frags of scolemias or blastomusas unless it's merletti. But the stuff that, we all love and enjoy is still readily available. So what do you see in terms of the manufacturing side? I mean, some of the manufacturing, you know, has been impacted because of, um, you know, supply chain issues and, oh. and well, you know, I think there's been, um, in, in some of the products that I've, um, you know, seen there's, there's been, um, I guess, uh, delays in product launches because of supply chain issues and, and, um, Stock has been kind of um, in and out for certain products. You haven't really seen that as a big impact because of COVID. No, there's a there is a black, and to me, there's absolutely like a black and white situation when it comes to aquarium manufacturers. You have real manufacturers, Kessel, AI, Ecotech Marine who they might source some parts from China, 
but they might buy some of those parts like a year out, right? Like they, they, if they're professional, they're really into manufacturing. And to do that, you have to have a very robust supply chain. These, some of the, you know, the better companies in the reef aquarium hobby, they have one person who is their Tim Cook, right? Tim Cook at Apple used to be that supply chain manager. So the real manufacturers, they have a production machine that is, you know, it, it, it's, it's got so much momentum, like if everything shuts down, they're still pushing out product for a year. They might have constraints on certain components. Then on the flip side is what I'm seeing just so much, and, it's, and I, find, I find rather gross, is the commoditization of aquarium goods. There's, you know, when I was looking at these magazines and getting the catalogs from That Fish Place and Debron Aquatics, I lusted over gear from Aquamedic, just beautifully painted Giesman, Sviligoy, just stuff that you know somebody's hands had to make that stuff. And now if you look at companies like Aquamedic in Germany or uh, TMC in England or I don't want to name the American ones because they're closer to home, <laughs> they're buying stuff from China and they're not doing anything except slapping a sticker on it, man. It is actually, again, it's gross. If, if you dig into some of this stuff, first of all, the Taiwanese-made products, just by their sheer nature, are so much better. They have a very different uh, engineering culture, manufacturing culture. And that being said, um, you know, Shenzhen is nothing to scoff at. Like, there are people there that engineer really, really great stuff. Um, and many of the great pumps in the aquarium hobby are the motors are made over there and then they're, you know, kind of tweaked over here. Um, so yeah, I just see way too much. Like I've been going to the inner zoo for like 10 years and, uh, you know, the first time I walked around from booth to booth to booth and there's like, there's a French company, there's a Belgian company, there's an English company and they all have the exact same protein skimmer with a different sticker right. on it. But you're seeing that to the nth degree now. You're seeing it way too more, too much. You know, I will call out TMC because they were selling these little LED pucks that I actually really loved, but they were labeling them at 78 watts when they only ran at 51 watts. That's not how that works. It's it's purely deceptive. And you know, this actually happened to me very recently with a major brand where I plugged in something that was supposed to be 500 watts and I was getting 300 mm. watts. I'm like, I called up the rep and he just didn't seem surprised about that. At oh, all. really? So the, com the commoditization means these companies don't really care that much about quality control or their products delivering what they say they will do. So you sure you have certain companies that are, they're not making anything. They're specking stuff. And those are the guys who have troubles getting shipments in because they're not making stuff in-house. And you have real manufacturers who make original stuff. Um, and, you know, how long has the Ecotech Versa been out of stock for? They can't keep up. Yeah, Reefkeeper made that comment. So what, what is going on, right, with the, uh, with the Versa pump in terms of uh, not being able to find it? Been been many, many months. Mm, I, bel you know, I don't want to speak on Ecotech Marine's behalf, but 
this is a, a result of everything, right? They've had so much demand for their lights. There's a lot more people who want sexy lights than want those, you know, fancy pumps. And so they have to prioritize their uh, manufacturing lines for one or the other. Do we make water pumps? Do we make flow pumps? Do we make lights? Do we make dosing pumps? You know, so for them, it's a balancing act. You know, Ecotech Marine, like, they've had ideas for all this stuff for like 10 years. Right. You know, I've known the boys for 15 years. We're all like all the same age. And we've talked about everything in the sun that you could possibly make, but it's at the end of the day, it's like what you put your resources into. Yep. So you mentioned that um, you're kind of longing for the shows to start back up again. Do you, if you had to venture a guess, what would be your um, estimate in terms of when we're going to kind of see that happening again? Will Will it be something similar in terms of what's going on in the sporting world, where there'll be a limited number of people allowed into these uh, trade shows, or do you think? That um, yeah, I think that actually might be happening in, in certain trade shows, from what I understand. But uh, well, okay, it really depends if we're talking about you know a piddly little frag swap. Like I went one to one in July. There was twelve vendors and maybe one to two hundred attendees in a giant room. All the booths were spread out like fifteen feet, and you know we can have those tomorrow. We had them last summer. Um, that's no problem. But for the more professional shows like Reefstock and Reefpalooza, we need, you know, a balanced diet of speakers, manufacturers, frag vendors, and then a healthy crowd to support all of that. So I don't see that till next year, bro. Oh, really? Wow. Dude, yeah. I mean, look at our rollout. Do you know anyone who has a vaccine? Uh, I know some old <laughs> folks, but yeah, I, uh, I'm i not expecting to get any time soon myself. So yeah, I, I guess there was hope that maybe... Um, late fall or something like that we could potentially start seeing shows but yeah i, I would probably tend to agree with you i think logistically it's going to be very challenging until uh, I mean, 2022 what kind of shows are we talking about are we talking about real hardcore bona fide reef shows that have everything you could possibly want and all your friends are there from all over the country or something local that you drive to pick up a couple frags and go home right. like that's that's happening right so you've kind of adapted right now right i mean you're doing these reef stock at home shows which are online shows. Mm-hmm. Um, how how is that uh, how's that been going for you? Has it been a challenge to try to like pull those off? It's it's um, probably uh, you got a lot of balls you're juggling up in the air with that sort of event online. Uh, you know, I kind of passed that buck. Ah. <laughs> I told my partner and some of other associates, I'm like, you know, I was involved with some of the early ones, but. To be honest, like me personally, I love reef stock, but I've organized reef stock in two continents 15 times. I don't I don't want to do it anymore. I want to come. Yeah. I want to MC. I want to make sure everything's going good. But the it's so much mental bandwidth, right? It is so much mental bandwidth. You know, a year, two years in advance, you got to book the location. A year in advance, you got to book all the sponsors and vendors. Six months in advance, you got to start putting a lot of pieces into place. Three months in advance, you got to start, you know, promotion earring, promotion, and then it's like every single day you got to. And I'm just, it's really exhausting. I just want to play with my tanks, yeah. man. I just want to. I mean, I rinse my hands off probably like ten to fifty times a day from getting in the tanks. I tend there's not a day goes by I'm not moving a coral, gluing something down. I'm with you. That's that's the fun part of this whole thing. Hey, uh, Great Bearded Reef, thank you very much for that $5 uh, donation. Really appreciate that. That is awesome. And uh, 
I think we got one of your buddies in the house there, uh, Jake, ACI Aquaculture. That might, that, What's up, that, Chris McAleen? That might be Chris. And he, he told me, I, I was talking to Chris today, and he told me to ask you a question on the show tonight. So maybe, uh, well, maybe I'll just blurt it out right now. He, he, sure. he kind of, uh, I know we, uh, we had a conversation about um, the name game, and he said you had some uh, pretty, uh, pretty strong thoughts on the name game <laughs> in terms of naming corals. All right, you need to set a timer so I don't get lost in the rant. Give me, give me five minutes. I'm not even kidding. I, I care more about the coral actually is. What is it actually, right? Because the reason I'm an asshole, and I'm sorry, but I am an asshole when people call them ACAN lords because they have not been ACAN lords for like six, seven years now. And the reason I'm really jerky about it and I don't let it slide. I just like just call it a lord. You won't. It's because if you put a lord next to an actual acan, you will end up with an acan because it will eat that lord like that. You learn something by knowing the difference between a cycloceras and a fungia. They come from vastly different environments. They have different care requirements. They come in different colors. They reproduce differently. Like you are, you know, when you were talking about how does someone get started? That's what I'm saying. Like, don't read anything because there's all these names thrown mm-hmm. about. Like, people, the, the hobby overall has not even come to a collective understanding of how we name a freaking coral, right? And it's gotten so much worse because you have the Dunning-Kruger effect where people have been in the industry, the hobby for five years, for 10 years. They think they've seen it all, you know? And so, like, they'll go around and slapping names. Let me... Pull out two examples, really good examples. So the, 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 the hobby in general, except in Europe, in Europe, they actually call things what they are to the best of their ability. But in America, man, it's like Looney Tunes, Disneyland, all <laughs> over the freaking place. And uh, it's pathetic. It's absolutely pathetic. I've been to some of these, you know, uh, fancy coral vendors and places and had some beers with them and dude behind the scenes they don't remember what name they threw on this or that coral but on the flip side it's also the consumer is also to blame because when i worked at unique corals we would put up mariculture maricultured colony of let's say just a small millet you know like three four five branch lits you know about this big uh put it up for 90 bucks no name no sale you just you just come up with two stupid adjectives and you make it a little bit smaller and you can't keep them in stock. Yeah. People feel like they're buying into a club, but two examples of, of coral naming that has gotten out of control is one is a weeping willow leather coral. Hmm. I have seen the weeping willow is my coral. That is mine. <laughs> don't, don't take that away from me, man. That was my coral. <laughs> For 15 years before I told anybody about it, the only person who has any is Sanjay. Maybe I shouldn't say that because otherwise they're going to be hitting him, and, hitting him up for that. Well, <clears throat> he's not a coral vendor no. me. And I did give Remy from Bahama Lama, I gave him my blessing to call his Weeping Willow. I mean, to be honest, it should be Weeping Willow style. But I've seen that name just like overnight. You know, I said only my friends knew about the Weeping Willow leather coral. Weeping Willow was a name we you first applied to thin branching Cinularia soft corals because their branches would droop mm-hmm. over in slow flow and like literally look like a Weeping Willow. 
And that's why the Weeping Willow Sarcophyton got its name, because when you turn down the flow, the polyps, not the branches, they, they fall over the crown. Um, the Coral Nursery in uh, Kentucky just took the name. I don't even know if they know what the descriptor came from. Um, Aqua SD had their name, had the Weeping Willow on something. Some random coral vendor in New York just threw it around. Um, and this was the worst one. Uh, sorry, Stephen, but Top Shelf Aquatics has an ORA Weeping Willow, which is the same <laughs> large polyped Micronesian sarcophyton that has nothing to do with the Weeping Willow. I have another long polyp leather coral, extremely long polyps. It is not a Weeping Willow. You turn the flow off, the polyps stay like this far up. They're just as long as a Weeping Willow, but they don't fall over. So that's one where I'm just like, Either we agree that we are going to stick with the Latin names to the best of our ability, <clears throat> or we agree to con confer and concur on some of these trade names for corals that are special and deserve it. But no one's doing that. If, you know what? Every time I come up with a coral name, dude, I just do a little quick Google search, uh, dot, 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 coral, and there'll be three different corals with that name on it. Hellraiser, Hellfire, Firestorm, Firestarter. It's just like there's not even any creativity to it. No. I mean, I, I remember, you know, in terms of like some of the old school corals that, um, you know, first came out that had the names like the Tyree Purple Monster and the uh, – I rebuke you. Oh, it's not. It's not. It's not Tyree. Okay, right. That was. Uh, I, I get. I get what you're yeah. saying, Ray. But Tyree had so little to do. I mean, Tyree had. If it wasn't him, it would have been someone else. And so he was very influential in starting that trend. I mean, I remember reloading Refarmers. Uh, actually, I remember DynamicEcomorphology.com before it turned into Refarmers in like late '90s. And you know, it was cool. It was fun. It was clubby. But when it was small, and everybody could kind of keep track of what was what. And, but the purple monster, you know, someone in the Solomon Islands went out to the reef, collected it, shipped it, brought it in. They did the work, right? Yeah. Uh, definitely take uh, umbrage to people just throwing their name on a coral they discovered. You don't discover corals in Los Angeles. You don't discover <laughs> them in Detroit. You don't discover them in New York. You discover them on the reef. So as far as I'm concerned, the only people who can really put a name to a coral is Vincent Chalius, who's actually farming this stuff. Right, the people that are picking them out of the ocean. Yeah, and some of those classic strain, you know, the Langside cap. It didn't even need a name. It's the cap, the purple rim cap that came from Langside. Very descriptive. Purple monster, still, like, to me, one of the coolest, neatest corals of all time. Or the green branching cap. It didn't have a silly name. It was a descriptive name. I feel that way about Euphelius today, where you cannot yeah. even keep – dude, there is five – thousand new names for different slight strains of torch corals right now and they're throwing the names on freshly imported corals that has no bearing on the strain great example i bought my dragon soul as a holy grail and then a Two years later, there's a holier grail, but instead of calling it the holier grail, which would have been funny, you know, worldwide corals influence basically kind of eclipsed what other people were calling the holy grail, and they were calling that the dragon soul. But now I've refused to play that game. It's an orange torch coral with green tips. <laughs> yeah, what's up with anemones too? I mean, like a Colorado sunburst anemone. What's uh, I mean that that is a pricey anemone. 
it was funny. It's like I've been growing the Colorado Sunburst for about 15 years. And I still remember a buddy of mine. Like I know the whole story, like top to bottom, who discovered it. The first guy who grew it. I saw the first grow out tank of it. Dude would not let me take a picture because he didn't want to know how many he had. It was only like 40 and 180. And he had two or three rose bubbles in there. And the rose bubbles looked dull. It was crazy. Um, but I remember the first guy who told me about it locally, he said, oh, yeah, we've got this really cool orange sunburst or, or no, sorry, orange bubble tip because it wasn't a sunburst. We're calling it the sunburst and we're getting three hundred dollars each. And I was like, you are crazy. No one would ever pay three hundred dollars for sunburst. So locally they were they were about three hundred locally for like 10 freaking years. And, you know, so for certain strains that have a proven track record of being cultured in the claim hobby, they do deserve a name, you know, and it was at a reef stock that one year just, you know, things were just a little bit higher demand. And it went to 600. And then the next year at reef stock, um, it was reef koi who's been around the hobby for a mm -hmm. long time locally. Um, somebody had somebody else had just thrown a sticker out there for $1,800 and sold it like that. And it's really frustrating that a lot of the value of the corals is from speculation, you know, like the right. rainbow tenuous that are happening right now. <sighs> I don't want to get into that, but let's wrap up the coral naming with one coral. There is no such thing as a purple stylophora, which isn't, the Milka Stylo. Mm. The Milka Stylo. For those of you that don't know, haven't been to Europe, Milka is a popular brand of chocolate that comes in a lavendery purple wrapper. Lav you know, so it, it means something. Milka Stylo. That coral was grown out in, all throughout Europe for like 15 years before Ore got a piece legally, you know, just they, they did a small shipment or something, I don't remember. And uh, then it got distributed into the Reef Aquarium Hobby. And if you go out and look for purple stylos, you will find as many names as there yeah. are coral vendors. I've seen people put Sanjay's name on it. And first, that coral is so special. And if you don't know the real name of it, you don't know the entire history of it. That is the only stony coral in the Aquarium Hobby that is from the Red Frickin' Sea. Oh, really? Think of all the corals we have. 90% of them are from Indo, from the Coral Triangle. Let's just call it Coral Triangle. Ve and then more recently is Australia. And then a very small amount from Central Pacific. That is the, that is the only stony coral of its kind from the entire Indian Ocean. Like we get some from the west coast of Australia, which is technically Indian Ocean, but to me that's still like Australian. But yeah, that coral's been in captivity for 35 freaking years. You will never see a wild purple stylophora that was collected in the Red Sea or maybe right outside of it by Jean Jobert. You know, you know the Jobert mm -hmm. plenum system? Yeah, yep, yep. He collected that in the late 80s, I, I specifically. And that was grown out at the Musée Oceanographique de Monaco, uh, the Monaco Aquarium, basically. It was grown in the Jobert, the first Jobert plenum tanks, like 10 years before it got spread out to anybody else. So if you don't know the name of the coral, then you don't know this super rich history that's associated with the purple style flora. Everybody just takes it for granted that it's a thing. I remember seeing it in France because – 
been to Europe many times. I remember seeing out the over there and getting parts of that story before we even had any varieties of of style of forest. So with, when it comes to the name game, like I mean, people need to put their foot down. They need to figure out what we're going to do for for naming. Um, okay. I <laughs> That's um, as much as I. I can say. I totally agree with you. I think it's gotten completely out of hand. I think the prices are, are insane. I think there's there's some corals out there. There's a couple um, that I've seen that could be worthy of the hype and, and the uh, and the name. I, I guess there's some um, – the Rainbow Splice coral out there is a pretty badass Acropora coral. And uh, No, it is a pretty badass-looking photo of a coral. Have you seen one? Not in person. Have you seen one this big? Have you seen one this big? Is it all pink? Is it all green? Is it crazy swirly like you think it will be? I don't know. You haven't seen I don't that know. coral. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? So when it comes to grafted corals, I have, I wouldn't say terrible experience because they grow and they're fine, but one color takes over the rest. Mm. Like for some of you that keep maybe like some house plants, uh, very similar thing as the variegations. And you have one of two things happen over a long period of time. Either the variegation takes over and the leaves become all white. Therefore, the plant cannot photosynthesize and it dies. Or the variegation gets outgrown by faster parts of the plant. So you have to maintain a balance of green versus white leaves or half green and half white leaves. So if you want a high maintenance coral that you're always going to be fragging, that's great, but you and me, man, we're a little bit old timers. I like a colony from across the room. Same thing with every single one of these rainbow tenuous. I collected rainbow tenuous. They are the least impressive corals from two feet away. I I I am in the same um, I'm the same uh, ballpark. I mean, I I love brightly colored corals that you can see at a distance. So I love I love pink bird nests. I love pink birds. I love um, purple, pink styloforas. I love the green, ba- the, the green valley slimer. Um, I Bluetooth I do style. like the um, the Oregon. I think I pronounced that right. I always pronounce Oregon wrong, and I get a lot of crap for it. But uh, the fine. Oregon blue tort is probably my favorite coral, and it is a name coral. But I think it's just. That one deserves it. Yeah. There's never been another coral imported to the aquarium hobby that has last, you know, lasted the test of time like the Oregon tort. We know where it came from. Obviously, it didn't come from Oregon reefs, right? It's just one of the first places it was discovered. When you see an Oregon tort as a frag, as a colony, as a colony, it always looks the same. But to me, I got it all over the studio. But to me, a reef tank. You know the way I treat a reef tank in terms of an SPS dominant reef tank, it's it's kind of like a canvas, and I like I like the paint, and I just think about in terms of the um, you know the different colors in that tank and what it's going to look like from across the room or from a few, a few feet away, and a virtual five, virtual high five. There you go. <laughs> I would like to commend you. I actually uh, referenced you without saying your name in my one of my last videos about aquascaping because I have the scolemia tank which is just a flat wall of rock, but I'm not aquascaping with the rock. I'm aquascaping with the corals. And so when I saw your tank, which had, I don't know, what'd you put in there? Like 80 pounds? It's a, it's 100, 100 pounds at a 225 gallon tank. Yeah, that's that's what you should be doing. Right. And it's, it's really frustrating and somewhat infuriating to get judged by hyper newbie reefers who've <laughs> only seen like, you know, totally packed coral tanks give you criticism on your aquascape 
because that's all they've seen is, you know, the blinging tanks of Instagram. I saw your tank, bro, and I was like, that's a kindred spirit. That guy is exactly on the right track. So I want to say right now for anybody who's setting up a, a tank in the size range of about 100 to 300 gallons, you want to do well, definitely follow Keith's mm, journey you. because from what I can tell, uh, you're definitely making some good decision making. Well, you know, it's – listen, you and I have been in the hobby for a long, long time and I've learned a lot over the years and I've made a lot of mistakes. I mean, at the beginning I used to create brick walls with rock in my reef tanks. I used to do the old, yeah, I used to do the old two pounds per gallon type of thing. And, um, it, uh, you know, that was kind of like the thing to do because that was the biological filtration that, that you have for the tank. And you didn't have dry rock back then. And you just, that's the way you started a reef tank, a lot of rock, but you know, well, so I think one of the things that the hobby is very slowly refining is all the advice that came from the local fish stores. I worked at local fish stores. I said, you know, so many inches of fish per gallon, so many pounds of rock per gallon, so many pounds of sand per gallon, so many cleanup crews per gallon. And you need to do this, to do this, to do this, to do this. And eventually you're going to have some, you know, of course you want to feed a, a ton of frozen food and then you're going to have phosphates and then you're going to come to me with some algae issues. I'm going to sell you more cleanup crew and we're going to get you set up with the media reactor. And then I'm going to sell you GFO or back then would have been Fosgard once a month. And it was just like, I don't think it was intentional and I don't think it was conniving, but most of all the things we think we know about the saltwater aquarium hobby in particular was dictated by what the fish stores told us. And it wasn't wrong per se, but it wasn't the easiest way to do things. And it wasn't the most effective way to do things. Right. So we've got some, uh, some chat going on here. I'm trying to keep track of it. I see Greg Carroll still waiting on Keith to ask him about rock or sand. I think we're talking about uh, sand or bare bottom. You, you keep bare bottom tanks, right? For the most part. There, in my mind, there is zero reason to have sand other than the aesthetics. But the, 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 the drawbacks are countless. Just on and on and on and on. You know, how many times are you supposed to answer to somebody, oh, I've tried to up the flow, but it blew my sand around. Like... How many times do I want to have that conversation and try to explain to somebody like flow is more important than your sand? You know, people talk about surface area. Have you ever walked up to a tank and said, oh, man, this tank has a lot of surface area <laughs> or it looks like you feed this tank a lot of phytoplankton? Like I don't value anything that you can't see the results of. Um, ick in a tank. You fish will is really going to change my superlatives it is really hard to for a fish to die from ick in a tank without sand if there's nowhere for the ick spores to go you don't even need a uv sterilizer it'll just get filtered out or skimmed out or just it just won't survive but if you have sand in a tank and you have ick good luck with that nutrient uptake you know people talk about uh, oh it's my denitrification and i used to be on that train too man i used to be on that train too but now i don't have sand so they never you know the nutrients never build up and when the, the hannah the new nitrate checkers came out um my 600 gallon system that probably has 500 corals and i don't know 50 60 fish 
the nitrates were 0.00. No sand. You know, and so it's like everything you think sand is doing for you, it isn't. Yeah, I have always kept sand in my reef tanks, but I've had ugly sand beds. And, you know, I like I like wrasses. I like to keep uh, leopard wrasses. And I know there's wrasses you could have in a bare bottom tank. Um, but I've always kept sand in my tanks just because I thought it was part of the uh, the, the aesthetic look of a, of a good looking reef tank. But, you know, my new peninsula tank is bare bottom and that's a first for me and and uh you are gonna love it so much there are so many issues that you think are gonna arise from your experience that won't they won't it won't happen yeah and and um you know the big reason is because it's it's going to be an sps dominant tank i you know the tank is about three and a half months old i still don't have any corals in there but that's gonna that's gonna change pretty soon so you know we, we talked about this before the show i wanted um I want to have all of my recirculating pumps at the end of the tank. I don't want to have anything on any any of the viewing panels. Now you you've done some uh, videos on ways to um, to hide recirculating pumps in a reef tank, but a peninsula tank it's a challenge, right? I mean, if if um, no, because your peninsula you have an external overflow box, right? Yeah, so you see them a little bit more. So both of my peninsulas have an internal overflow box, and so it just kind of hides like they're tucked in. You know, if this is. Yeah, they're just kind of tucked in, and I just kind of always uh, forget that they're there. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, that was the reason why I, I went with the bare bottom in that tank, is because it's a peninsula tank, and there's I'm cranking a lot of flow at that one of the tank, and there's just, I think, no way to be able to keep sand on the um, on the bottom of that, uh, you know, that tank. So, so I am a, I'm definitely a contrarian, right? I'm not a RAS man, but... Rasses are stupid. They don't know if they're hiding underneath <laughs> the rock or in the sand. Unless, okay, there are specialist sand diving rasses. I would never keep a razor ras without sand. Like, they swim in the sand. You know, jawfish. Jawfish, absolutely freaking. Like, they need to build a little burrow. Um, you know, but other than that, man, I got, I got leopard grasses for years. I got namsies for years. No sand. They go hide under something. They don't know Oh, really? Better. So you're keeping them without they're, sand? I don't have any sand anywhere. Wow. <laughs> I actually, that's, that's not true. I have mangroves in um, refugite from Two Little Fishies. And I put heavy river stones, a thick layer, on top of that specifically so the, the leopard grass wouldn't be able to get in there and stir stuff up. They'll, they'll find they'll find something. They'll just go hide under something. That being said, I'm not a hardcore grass man, but I have. Uh, yeah, plenty of rasses over the years. And we're, if we're being real, it's really only the leopard rasses that maybe need it and, and, and pencil rasses. But nobody you know, keeps pencil rasses for a long period of time. So, all right, if you, you know, if you feel bad, if you feel bad about it, don't fill your tank with sand. Do what you know the experts do. Put a little tray in there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a quote from the movie Boogie Nights. You, uh, you were what you dig. And I think uh, with a reef tank, you um, you keep the fish that you dig in the reef tank. And that's the beauty of the hobby. Yeah. I think it's important for us veterans to be flexible to new trends and to new ways of doing things. You know, I, I don't I don't I don't even remember how exactly I felt when the frags started getting smaller. You know, this used to be. Yeah, you know, this used to be a frag, like a chunk, <laughs> and then it got smaller and yeah. smaller and smaller. Now you got smaller. quarter inch frag. I, I, I thought it was, 
I thought it was, you know, really bad back in the day, but now you can find Sunset Monty in every corner of the country. You know, Rainbow Monty, you can't give it away. Like some of these strains that used to be $100 per square millimeter, now you can't give them I've away. I've got so and much so Sunset Monty in my uh, frag tank and so much um, Mystics. I mean, it's I, you're right. Oh, you can't get rid of it. Mystic Sunset's a fun one because me and a buddy of mine, we use it as glue. <laughs> we literally like, do we want those rocks together? Okay, let's glue some Mystic Sunset, let it grow on there, and then we'll kill it. Superman, Monty, awesome. Um, so Paula Pal is, uh, and this is a question I had for you too, uh, Jake. Let's let's talk about live rock versus dry rock. What are your thoughts in terms of what's going on with the uh, the dry rock scene, and then the you know the negative space aquascapes and all that uh, fun stuff? What what are your thoughts on dry rock? I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean in for this one. <laughs> I'm gonna say something really philosophical, and I want everyone to hear me clearly. On a long enough timeline, everything becomes a pest. I could tell you what the reef tank of the future looks like. It has nothing in it besides the coral and bacteria. I promise you, this is, we, this is the direction we're going, right? People set up these you know, uh, test tube uh, display tanks at the events in an, a few hours, and then it's fine, everything is freaking fine. You know, I set up tanks like that too. But on a long enough timeline, everything becomes a pest. You know what my pest is? Sponges and coralline algae. Hmm. Coralline algae grows out of control. It, it competes with the corals for minerals and nutrients. At night, it represents a huge amount of biomass that puts CO2 into the system. It's so everything becomes a pest. Yellow polyps, sympodium. I have to harvest, I, this is my fault, you know, uh, uh, this is a fault of my environment. Uh, my water has two ppm silicate. Does not matter. It does not matter for corals. But I grow sponges like, ah, I hate them. I hate them so much, man. I have to harvest sponges all over the place. Little ball sponges, little encrusting sponges. So on the long timeline, if you let your reef tank go, you would have one coral. This is how the reef works. This is how ecological succession is supposed to transpire. So with that in mind, do you want to roll the dice and introduce 50, 100 different things that you don't know what they are? Um, give me one second. I need to plug in. Yeah. Use a bathroom. Um, so give me a few minutes. Talk to people in chat, and I'll pick back up. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, Jake is going to take a, a couple of minute uh, hiatus and uh, – yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting because I've in, in terms of the live rock versus the dry rock um, discussion, you know, I've always been and I've I've talked about this before in my live stream, you know, I've I've always started tanks with uh with live rock versus dry rock and and uh, I had a bad experience. I know Greg Carroll is watching and we've talked about this before in terms of uh dry rock, but um you know, it's it's um I think it's something that um in terms of what we have available today it um most people are going to be starting their tanks with with dry rock and it makes total sense um i just uh you know i, I do think it does take a little longer to have the tank mature and, and be ready for corals versus um versus live rock but that is just my opinion you know i know when i had uh mike pellet on mike pellet on last uh, last week you know he was uh he was a big advocate of um you know going the live rock root because of you know all the uh the sponges and the bio biodiversity 
on the uh, on the live rock. So you know, I, I guess it's uh, it's it's a personal preference. But you know, with my new 225 gallon tank, starting with with live rock, it's been knock on wood, kind of smooth sailing right now. Um, and um, you know, it's uh, it's 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 uh, it's interesting. But I hear you folks out there that start tanks with with dry rock. It's really a um, it's the main option these days. Um, so it's just looking at some of the uh, the chat folks here. Um, Reef bum, Brock B. What would be your one coral if you were going to grow out a single coral species tank, Jake? Yes. Um, all right, we got a question from Brock B. I guess it's a before that. I want to finish up my my point. Yeah. On a long enough timeline, everything becomes a pest. Absolutely, dry rock is the only way to go because we spend, let me think about it, how much of our mental bandwidth is devoted to coral? When it comes to a reef tank, it's like 98% of our time is thought about this coral versus that coral and what the coral needs. The fish are easy as long as you get past the disease and quarantine procedures. And you don't really think about the fish except interactions with the coral. No one is, unless you really want that reef ecology and, and you like all the little critters and you like all the little bugs, um, you know, nobody's starting a thread about some weird copepod they found on their tank. There's no designer amphipods for sale anywhere, right? So yeah, on a long enough timeline, um, it's not, it won't be just dry rock. I think it's gonna be artificial decorations because I, don't, I, I rail against porosity. Right, porosity is just a place for more biomass to build up, more nutrients and detritus and stuff to get locked in, and that stuff is not doing anything for you. So yeah, on a long enough timeline, not only are we just the idea of using wild rock or you know cured, or, you know any kind of that rock, that's going to be for people who want the reef ecology, but for the general 99.9% of us who just really care about the corals. In the future, corals are all going to be tissue cultured, and there will be nothing in your aquarium that you didn't add specifically. So while you were away, I was kind of recapping my experience with dry rock versus live rock, and I've always started my tanks with live rock. But one time I did try dry rock. It was pretty much a disaster for me a few years ago, and I just um, – I had – Did you have sand Did you have sand in the tank? I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did have sand in the tank. But, um, yeah, you know, it was, uh, it was a um, – it was not a good, it was not a pretty scene. So I actually, I broke the tank down and I was in Florida <clears throat> for vacation and I found some uh, Haitian live rock, which was um, three, uh, three, three, four years ago. I don't think you could find Haitian live rock anymore. It was always kind of gray market to begin with. Oh, you really? Okay. So um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I was able to, to, uh, to snag some of that and, and put it in my 187 gallon tank. But uh, so I've had great experience with live rock. I've had shitty experience with dry rock. I know Mike Paletta was on last week, and he had a kind of a similar experience with, with dry rock in his 90-gallon tank. Um, the, 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 the rock that I started, the, the new Peninsula tank, is, is live rock, and I had great biodiversity on it. And I agree in terms of the pests that you get with the live rock. It is You're rolling the dice. You really are. I mean, when I put that live rock in a um, high-specific gravity solution to flush out you know some of the bad critters i got a managed shrimp i got a whole ton of pistol shrimp i got some um suspect looking crabs you know i got a lot of stuff out of that um that uh, that live rock but um you know it has been smooth sailing me it's because i i've got bare bottom tank i don't know 
But uh, I hear you in terms of what you're saying with, with, with dry rock versus uh, live rock. And just you don't really have that many options, I guess, these days anyway with live rock. I don't even think of it in terms of that, man. I think of plastic step stools and cinder blocks and river rock, just anything that just doesn't look goofy, you know. But in my mind, I want it as non-porous as possible, as inert as possible. So I will use anything. I think concrete is probably the future. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think definitely down the road, if you want fewer issues, like I don't know what issues people could have with dry rock, right? Some dry rock is actually old live rock that came from somebody's tank or harvested from the ocean and it would never cure it. It could be full because of the porosity. There's so much funk growing inside. Um, I will always take the cleanest, driest, least porous stuff possible. What are your feelings on the uh, the NSA, the negative space aquascapes? Do you think it's worth the time to craft something like that? I mean, my point is that um, I don't think... Is that what they're calling it? Yeah. <laughs> I spend no time on forums. You know, I've my aquascaping style actually is um, referenced from freshwater plants. Like, I've had so many freshwater plant tanks, and, you know, I would... I would never designate something as a negative space aquascape. Like you want open space for water flow <laughs> for the ecological reasons. And then for the aesthetic reasons, like, you know, if everything, if it's just a field of corals and it's like all kind of the same, it's your eye needs to, your eye, your eye needs a path, you know, it needs a path to get drawn in here to get drawn in over there. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. That being said, I think it's important for us, uh, more experience, you know, not because we have more experience, but because we've experienced more to not get set in our ways, to not say, this is how you do it. This is how things are supposed to be. Um, this, this, this community, this global community is informed by the participation of more and more and more people and more ideas for better or for worse when it comes to absolutely atrocious, useless coral names to, <laughs> You know, interesting techniques and uh, different ways of, of doing things. Yeah, I think if you stick to the, you know, to the basic principles of reef keeping and, and, and abide by that also with, with um, aquascaping, and by that I mean what we talked about, I think less is more. You want to have, have the open space. You want to be able to have, you know, circulation, you know, if you have an SPS dominant tank to, uh, to help. You, you want to also anticipate a couple of years down the road when that tank matures and the corals actually grow out, right? You Wait, anticipate what? Yeah. Plan, plan ahead? <laughs> Americans? That's not what yeah, we do. Yeah, right. Look at the vaccine rollout. Oh, uh, let's not get into that discussion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think, um, I think you got to... It's definitely evolved in terms of what what's become more popular, and 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 uh, I I dig the bonsai aquascapes, and I dig you know some of this NSA stuff, but I also think that um, you know maybe people are spending a little bit too much time on that stuff because eventually the corals will grow in and cover that aquascape. You and I have seen more than enough freshly aquascaped reef tanks packed with corals, and you're like, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> That's going to work for like two months. You know, back to what I was saying, on a long enough timeline, everything becomes a pest. You leave the coral, the reef tank alone, all the stuff alone, you end up with one coral. That's just how that goes. 
So Jake, like you've seen, you've seen these old tanks that people are tearing down online in your local groups or on forums, and there will be like 50% of the coral mass is going to be cold coral or leather coral or candy coral or scroll or, or, or Econopora. Like you've already seen this in action when you see people tear down tanks and they have bushels of four types of corals. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So we're, we're an hour into the stream and, uh, I got oh, I, I got like a I got like a ton more questions to ask you here, but uh, I, don't, I don't I don't. No one can out talk reef me. <laughs> you want to do this? Let's go. Are we talking? We, we talk. We talking a marathon here, Jake. Uh, a, uh, as long as the reef, a rapping, the, the watchers are a rapping with reef bum marathon. All right, um, let's talk about the studio. How how did that uh, come about? What was the idea behind the studio? Um. So from the beginnings of working, when I joined Reef Builders and then became a partner, I always had a bunch of tanks at home, at a home, you know, where things were kind of shoehorned to do this or to do that. And, you know, you got, back then I had roommates and then girlfriends, and it's not great to, you know, clean out filter socks or protein skimmers in the kitchen because you don't have a dedicated sink. And, you know, Reef Builders has grown a lot over time, and I always wanted a dedicated workspace that could maximize everything I want to do. Water changes, boom. It's, it's like the infrastructure is here. I can, I can, you know, put a coral in a bandsaw and clean up in like five minutes. Um, so I, I always had this idea, but I, I also knew it would be about timing as far as like me being ready to handle it and reef builders being able to absorb some of those costs so we could really put the effort into creating original content that isn't informed by the headlines of Facebook or online forums. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I, I ever want to be responding to what's going on out there. Like I have enough, I mean, I, I could spend a month literally just talking about pH. I know that you don't think so, but I really could every day have a different article about pH, pH, the war on pH, having too many fish, having deep sand bed, having a huge biomass, increasing evaporation for so you can dose more calquaser, you know, just bring in fresh air from outside. It just, it just goes on and on and on and on. And so the studio was just really built out of that. So what, what have you learned, um, you know, with the studio in terms of what, what was the, um, in terms of the vision, did you fulfill the vision or is it still evolving? The vision was to have as all the corals I ever wanted and never be limited in what I could have. Because at my previous residences, you know, I had maybe like a couple, three reef tanks and then a few fish tanks. And here it's just like, you can hand me any coral and I have a spot for it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can do everything. But I, I just wanted it to be clear. I didn't set up the studio so I can create content. I create content so I can have the studio and have all the tanks I ever wanted, test all the gear. I love testing good gear. There's so much junk. Don't. And so I've got a two-foot tank, a three-foot tank, a four-foot tank, a three-foot cube, two peninsula tanks. I've got a fish tank. I've got some flat tanks. And so any coral you throw at me, any piece of equipment you throw at me, I can use it. I can test it. You know. And I didn't 
you know, previously, you know, I had normal reef tanks. And so anytime somebody sent me a new light or a new, new pump or this or that, like it was very disturbing to the balance of the aquarium to change what I was doing. And so this way, you know, there's a couple tanks that are always earmarked for, okay, this tank needs a new pump, this tank needs a new light, or I want to try out this light versus that light. So, uh, yeah, nowadays, you know, unless it's for public aquariums, you can throw anything my way and I can put it in the, you know, the queue for, for thorough review. You know, you see so many reviews where people don't even fire up the skimmer. They just have it in their lap and they're just like, this is a great skimmer. Oh, it's really sturdy. Look at that. Already. It's an unboxing. It's like. Put it in the tank and run it for a while. Like every, every piece of equipment almost works great on day one. But one of the things that people don't understand is you absolutely get what you pay for. There are, I'm calling out G-Bow and every relabeled G-Bow product, Aquamedic, you're on notice. The pumps lose magnetism over time. And you will never know that. They won't break. They still work, right? But if you get a new G-Mount and, and one that's been running for a year, exact same model. I mean, you could get them from the same batch, run one for a year, put them next to each other, and the flow coming from the brand new pump, because the magnetism hasn't been used up, is like two to three times as much as the other one. Yeah. All right. I got a question from chat based on a comment you just made earlier about pH, and then I want to get into some of the product stuff with you, Jake. Um, we, so we got a question from Brock B in terms of the pH. What are your thoughts on the ideal pH? And, uh, what do you, um, what do you run your tanks at? What do you, what, what's your target pH levels? <sighs> I, I would preface that by saying I am not super worried about the pH swing. I don't think that matters at all. If you're raging from 8.2 to 8.4 or 8.0 to 8.2, don't worry about the swing. It doesn't happen in the ocean, but it, over 25 years, no one has had a baller reef tank because their pH was within 0.01 for the whole year. So that's the first thing. Like, don't worry about the swing. Just bring the entire swing up. Right. And then the other thing that people don't understand is like, if you have your lights on for eight hours, that means you have them off for... 14 hours. Is that math right? 16. 16. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was my first yeah. one. <laughs> so if you have a short photo period and a long, what I'm starting to uh, describe as a non-photo period, you have a longer period of time for the pH to build up. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So when you're starting out a new tank, you definitely want to have that shorter period to just keep all those algaes back and let your corals really settle into the system. Um, but for me, ideal pH is probably 8.2 to 8.4. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And yeah. The thing is, I am at high elevation in a very dry climate, so I can evaporate all the water I want. <laughs> I can dose all the calc water I want. And this does not reflect the experience of most sea level reefers or, you know, people who live in a humid environment. They're not, you know, they're just, it's just not going to happen for them. So they need to figure out some other stuff. But, you know, a go to eight two. I think is fine. I mean, it's totally fine. You'll grow fine, um, but kind of bringing it full circle to some of the things we said earlier on with Chris Meckley. Like I talk to him once or twice a week because we get to take these ideas. You know, 
pH has always kind of been a side parameter for most folks, just something they sort of think about. But I did a video um, almost two years ago now about like, hey, yo, you need to jack up your pH. But then I kind of like walked away from it. And then Chris picked it up and he started really experimenting with stuff. And then Brightwell came out with a product called Boost pH. And so that collaboration where the idea goes around and around and around with a few people, you know, we're comparing, really comparing notes. That's what I miss the most about the Reef conferences. Um, so, so yeah, so eight, 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 two to eight, four, I think it's going to be really hard for me most people to, to achieve unless they just take unnecessary or just really extravagant means to, 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 to prevent that. And are you mostly running a calcium reactor or are you doing any two part dosing or is it pretty much calcium reactor is what you're using at the studio? Um, I don't even cons like, all right. So like, for example, my, uh, six foot water box, I, every time I'm looking over, I'm literally looking at the tank I'm talking about, I'm like <laughs> that tank right there. All right. For example, my six foot water box, like it'd be kind of silly to set it up with a calcium reactor that will satisfy the needs of that tank when it's fully grown of SPS. And so I will probably start out every tank on two part. But as soon as the corals reach a critical mass or it's a certain volume, it just makes so much more sense to use a calcium reactor. Right, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm dosing two-part in my 187-gallon tank. And I'm dosing 250 to 300 mLs a day for each part. And, uh, yeah, that's not cheap, you know. So it's, it's certainly for a larger um, reef tank, calcium reactor makes a lot of sense. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, with, with, um, my tanks are in a finished basement. So in the winter time here in Vermont, windows are closed. It, um, is problematic. So I just did recently have a, um, an air exchange unit installed in the basement and that's, that, that's definitely that is so clutch. Yeah. How much did your pH go up when you did that? Um, you know, it, it went from like, um, 8.1 to like 8.3 in terms of the, the load of the, uh, you know, the higher up. So like a point point two increase. You know, in terms yeah, of yeah. So one thing that people need to understand is that pH is also a logarithmic scale. So a point one difference is huge right. in terms of of coral growth, calcifying coral growth. Right, and I'm still kind of playing around with the air exchange unit because initially I had it running twenty percent of the time, and I didn't see that much of a change. Maybe like a point one, you know, change. But then I bumped it up to forty percent, and it's uh, got it up to like point two uh, difference. So it's it's certainly made an impact for me. I mean, I, I tried without success to run an airline, you know, from the um, from the skimmer to to the window outside. Did not really work. Um, but I know some folks run uh, CO two scrubbers to uh, to try to well, help. I think that's also going to be a factor of your aquarium. So I have a CO two monitor here in the studio, and I check it every like twice a day. Like a, I, every time I come in, I check it out and see what it's at, and. If you have long, flat, shallow tanks like me, which have a high surface area to volume ratio, your skimmer only represents part of the gas exchange that's happening on your reef tank. If you have a tall, narrow, skinny tank with a tiny little bit of water level, your skimmer is going to represent most of the gas right. exchange on a tank of that size. So if your indoor air CO2 is getting up to a you know one part per thousand, 1,000 ppm, um, 
and you're pulling in air from outside, you're just you just kind of you know just have this dance where CO2 is coming in this way and it's going out the other way. So you might see a small difference, but it's uh, you know definitely I think in the future. For the home, for the home uh, hobbyist who has a reef tank, uh, you know, a basic CO2 indoor monitor is going to be a big deal. Do you think it makes a difference to have a dual chamber calcium reactor versus a single cha- chamber calcium reactor? Any experience with that's that? A, that's a very timely question because my favorite calcium reactor forever from now until forever that I don't think will ever be topped is the Deltec twin tech because anytime I have need more calcium, I just press a button up or down, up Mm. or down. That calcium reactor doesn't come with a secondary chamber, which is interesting because it has some of the lowest, uh, pH effluent water of any calcium reactor because it runs off a saturation state, right? On a typical calcium reactor, you're going to set it to like 6.6, 6.7, and that's what you're at. My water comes out of there at about 6.05, 6.1. So it's a lot more CO2 going into the system. So literally just last week, I forgot. It was on my list of things to do, and I just totally forgot about it. So I set up the affluent on a static second chamber. It didn't do anything. Hmm. The water flowing through a static chamber of fine aragonite sand did not do jack. Hmm. Cause I mean, I have pH meters. I'm always like, boop, boop, boop. I mean, every day I pull out my hand of Bluetooth pH probe and I go around and I test everything in different places. So, so I'm really keeping track of stuff. So then I turned that secondary uh, chamber into a very small makeshift um, calcium reactor. Uh, basically, a ma- so I have a calcium reactor after my calcium yeah. reactor. And it's just a small little recirculating jobby, and it bought me two points. Oh, you know, but like I, but, but like I said earlier, uh, pH is logarithmic scale, so that's that's a that's lot a of change. CO2 gone. And so then that goes down into the sump, goes through a protein skimmer, and then it goes through uh, my ketomorpha barrel. And, uh, yeah. So what was the original question about secondary chambers? Yeah, do you think, I think it... static ones are trash? I think, I don't know if they do anything. I, I really needed to actually touch base with some of my buddies, um, who have Destaco reactors cause they have secondary chambers, but those secondary chambers have, um, more of a marble like, uh, calcium carbonate thingy. And I would just really love to open it up and just like put it in you know, the first chamber and the second chamber. I don't think static static second chambers are really doing anything for us. And we can test this stuff. It's really easy to test it. Interesting. All right, so um, trying to keep track of the chat here. I think we've had a couple of questions popping up here that I have not uh, asked you, Jake. And these are a couple of random questions. So uh, I think Brock B has asked this a couple of times. We'll, uh, we'll ask it right now. Um, and actually, I did ask it, but then we got interrupted. I'd love to hear what the one coral... I would choose and you would choose to dominate a tank. And I, I think we're talking SPS here. So if you had to pick one, one SPS coral to dominate a tank, what would that coral be? Uh, I'm going to go with two. I'm going to go with two, you know, one or the other. I mean, it's just really, really, really hard to beat a giant scrolling cap, you know, a giant scrolling green cap, orange cap, purple cap, like whatever it is, like it, you will not be disappointed if you fill the tank with orange Capricornus, right? And in that same light, if you have a tank full of staghorn slimer, you won't be bored. It's like, it's really awesome. One, like one or the other, it's just beautiful. So I have, um, I have a Cali tort 
that has gotten to be 24 inches across right now in the middle of my 187 gallon tank. And it looks awesome. I love that look. It looks so natural. And, uh, you know, it is problematic because it is shading out some other corals. And I'm going to have to get in there and uh, do a little chopping. But uh, Yeah, send me some. I'll trade you torts for Yeah, torts. there you go. It's um, But it, I just love that, you know, it, it is stag-like, you know, the tort and all that sort of thing. And, and my, my um, uh, well, I, I've got this, um, what, what's it, the Montipora? I'm, I'm spacing on the uh, Stellata. Montipora, the tubs, ah, that, yes. that thing That's is another gorgeous gigantic. One. And it's, it's a problem because these things are so huge and it's choking out circulation. There you go. I have all the room. <laughs> I have all the room. I, I have so many neat corals that I just want to share, but I don't want to sell them, but I don't want to give them away to someone who's not going to value what they are. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's great to have a mature tank with big corals. And, and I guess the problem is when you've got other corals that have just kind of um, succumbed to the other corals that are just growing out of control, but it's, it's, and I, listen, it's a good problem to have, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I love giving away corals to tanks that are ready for them. When you put corals in the hands of someone that right. you know is going to, be able to grow it and take care of it right. that's just an awesome feeling right so here's another random question actually it's a question we were, we were talking about this at the beginning of the show um from polyp pal um Reefum, can you ask jake what his top three go-to books are for the hobby mm. go-to books well he's got some behind you oh this is tough because there hasn't been many great books that encapsulate <laughs> I don't that encapsulate you'll have to send that a copy when we trade some corals there just hasn't been a great book it's just it's just really hard to answer every question to the fullest you know what I mean yeah and I would almost I wouldn't think that I would say this but Tony Vargas's book that the the coral reef aquarium it, it, it circles back to how we started this whole conversation. It shows off like 50 different tanks of varying sizes, shows what they do and how they do it. You know what I mean? I was that I, is, my, my, I was in that book. Oh, really? I think uh, the, um, yeah. Here, hang on a second. Do you have it? Somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I got it somewhere. Anyway, yeah. I, I think yeah. That, that book is awesome because it showcases. Right examples right it's really hard like the reef aquarium and the modern coral reef aquarium are great references for like the mid 90s and i every every time i need to know something like for reals for reals i will pull out these books like i don't pull them out often but when i do it's because it's something i know i can really really trust but the modern coral reef aquarium is probably one of the best because it showcases those examples and it's two things one it's a roadmap for how you could do the same thing and two it's inspiration right and that inspiration is when we've been reefing and we know the the ropes um the inspiration really uh gets your your gears you know jogging you know it really stirs your your gray matter gets you thinking about other things yeah, it's it. You know, listen, I think books are. Um, it, it's kind of like a lost art form that um, kind of gotten away from a little bit, but um, great source of uh, information. So we've got another question from Wolfgang. 
uh, Reef Bum, can you ask Jake, out of all the tanks that he's documented around the whole world, this is, I had this question too, which three are your favorites and, and why? The whole world? <laughs> There's this guy um, named Wesley, and I think he's in Holland. Yeah, he's in Holland. And I visited his tank three years ago. And there was not one spectacular coral in the aquascape. There was one that wasn't one showcase fish, but it was so thoughtfully put together. It was like ultra European. He's an elevator repair technician, you know, and he's Dutch going on German. So he's got like that, that critical thinking applied to his reef tank. He had made his own Pax Bellum reactor. Mm. I, I can't remember one thing in the tank, but I remember the whole tank overall. Just like you could just sit back from like, you know, across the room on the couch, have a little, uh, you know, European cafe and some little biscuits and just like, man, it's just, it's just beautiful. Just beautiful scene and there's a video if you type in wesley's reef tank i did a video and i think there's been some other features more recently so that's that's one that really stood out um uh faisal faisal i don't remember his last name faisal's reef tank in abu dhabi mm. man i, I remember dubai. that video i went to dubai and we drove in the desert there was like rocks and, and camels i'm serious we're driving <laughs> through the desert there's a beautiful road surrounded by desert rock deserts and occasional camels i'm like where the hell are we going y'all and we came up to this beautiful place and faisal's reef tank again was really considerate i i, I prefer to use less equipment when appropriate but faisal's an engineer and this was his first true reef tank and he just knocked it out of the park man i mean it's yeah it, it doesn't matter that he had some steep financial resources to put this tank together the look on his face when he saw my impression of it that was awesome the whole tank was awesome the sump was cool the lighting was cool he did a couple little tricks that i try to showcase in the video faisal's reef tank was like it it, it it again it stirred your 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 gray matter and really got you thinking about what you were doing so um that was another one and then um a little bit different from that um, was uh, Evan Luo's lifted aquascape because mm. it wasn't a, it wasn't a peninsula tank, but it was in wall and you could see the other side, so it's kind of peninsula. But he, you know, he was living in Australia. He lives in Australia, and he can get you know chunks of coral for like 30, 50, 60 bucks, wow. right? Um, but there was no rhyme or reason to his filtration. And he had a ton of lights, and on top of a ton of lights, he got even more lights to just pack it in. And he was putting corals on top of corals. And the whole bottom third, there was nothing. A little bit of rock, a little bit of sand, just flow that could just get up yeah. into the reefscape and had the longest tentacle Duncan I've ever seen. Um, so those three are, are really, really nice. That's, those are the ones that kind of stick in mind. And, I, you know, I, those are the... There's others that were also super cool, but I don't know. Those are the first three that came to mind. All right, we got we got a few other questions, and then maybe we should uh, we should wrap it, wrap it up. But um, I still got a ton of questions for you. You're gonna just have to come back, Jake, for another show here. We'll uh, we'll have to pick up where we left off. But here's one. I don't know if you know Reefer Reeves, 
But he's teeing up a question for you here that uh, I'm sure you're going to have an interesting answer for. Tell me your opinion on on your thoughts on why or why not to use a controller. Mm. Oh, I knew this question was going to come out somewhere. <laughs> so this this segues back into the previous question that you asked. Is I have arguably seen more reef tanks than anyone alive currently. You know, another five, ten years, and maybe somebody else will be a traveling reefer. And Wesley's reef tank was the only one you're running a controller. Wow. There is no correlation. Actually, there's almost an inverse correlation between the quality of the tank and whether or not it's running a controller. I am the controller, you know, and I had one of the first apexes ever given to me personally by, um, oh God, Kurt, Kurt at the iMac West 2009 on the Queen Mary, you know, (laughs) and I started plugging stuff up and plugging stuff up. But you know what happened is then things became smarter. Your lights came with their own programming. The the pumps came with their own programming. The controllable DC pumps started working. And there's very few use cases for which a controller is really necessary and actually benefits the tank. Right? Like who a more smart, you know, controllable Bluetooth dosing pump is $60. Wow. You know what the Wi-Fi version? It's $80. Wow. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, and that's a, that's a company that manufactures their own dosing pumps and they make their own pumps and they make their own pumps and they make their own pumps. That's important to, to repeat because they're not buying something from somebody else and tweaking it a little bit. They, that's a, that is a dosing pump company. Um, you know, what light are you going to buy today that doesn't have built-in programming? You know, mm-hmm. unless it's like a strip light or something, right? right? Radeon, Kessel, AI, <laughs> you know, they all have yeah. that built up. I guess the Kessel, you have to kind of add it on, but they, they do it in a, in a smart way. So if you, you know, like how often, I mean, just last week, man, I heard about a major system malfunction at a major coral dealer and Apex is on every system. Mm. They didn't. They didn't get the notice. Well, you know the Apex system, or, or and other controllers. One of two things happens, right? Everybody says in case shit, in case stuff, in case of this and that. But it, I've had wipeouts a long time ago, and so when I'm building a reef tank, I am thinking critically about how everything can go wrong. Every little thing. I'm always thinking this can go wrong. This can go wrong. I have to watch that. I have to watch that, and. Two things happens when you have a controller. Either it sends you too many alerts and you turn them off because it's annoying. Mm-hmm. Or it doesn't send you the random alert for the thing you needed to know. You know what happened at this one major dealer that everyone of you knows, but I'm not going to call them out because they don't know that I know. <laughs> Somebody flipped a switch and all the water back flowed it, you know, into the sump. So all the probes were still in the sump. And so as far as the apex was concerned, everything was hunky dory. There wasn't, I I guess if they had a leak detector that would have sent somebody an alert. But uh, so again, it's one of those cases, if it's sending you alerts for a bunch of stuff, you probably will turn those off. And there's so many of the aquarium authorities that 
you know, they, they got they got their you know, their gear for free, and so they don't want to say, "Hey, I had this problem." Like you know, people you know have had multiple tank meltdowns where if the apex was functioning or other controller was working it's not that it wasn't working it's just it's combination of of the product and the user error right so i mean we could talk about controllers for a while one the it's there's a little bit of user error but if you set up your reef tanks to fail in an uh you know fail without issue right every time you set up a reef tank you should go ahead and pull that plug and just watch everything and plug it back in and see what it does your apex can't do that for you right your prophylux can't do that for you you know um and people spend so much of their energy learning how to use the controller they get all these if this then that and they're so proud of it and at the end of the day it does not result in a better reef tank because, you know, if we were having this live stream 10 years ago, I think I would have a very different perspective on it because back then all our pumps were dumb, all our lights were dumb. But now I use $5. I use $5 Wi-Fi outlets for so many things. And it, I can hold my breath in the time it takes me to set each one of those up. I don't have to ever log in. I don't ever have to connect directly bluetooth or wi-fi uh, pull up the app up, 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 up. it's just it's so fast and here's you know here's my thing about aquarium controllers also like i am a techie most of my reef aquarium blogging comes from a near lifetime of reading tech aquarium blogs if controller manufacturers were really invested in turning their devices into aquarium computers, they would have an updated model that reflected consumer electronics every two years. You know, how is an EB-8 gonna, I don't know, I don't know, what does it cost, 100 bucks, 150 bucks? Is that how much an EB-8 is? Something like that. Yeah, do you know how much a Wi-Fi controllable power strip is? A lot cheaper. It's 25, (laughs) it's 25, and it works like, that sure it's not connected to other things but like the e-coral light it's a tiny little box it's a, it's a raspberry pi inside it basically just has a couple things you can plug in and it's got a separate wi-fi outlet that works in tandem with it if these guys if the aquarium controller manufacturers and i'm not talking about the the tricky stuff that they're doing like the trident like the KH director, like the Alcatronic, those are, that's breaking new ground, right? But if they were really tracking consumer electronics, you would never buy an EB-8. You would just be able to incorporate, you know, any one of a number of these Wi-Fi controllable power strips to your setup for like 20 bucks. But they have to make money and they have to make the case for it. But, you know, at the end of the day, I it, it infuriates me to see people spending thousands, literally thousands of dollars on they they will get their tank and stand maybe they'll get their sump in their skimmer and then they will throw thousands of dollars at a controller before the tank is even has water in it so personally emotionally i rail against controllers because it's it's a different hobby right i i feel 
like Macna slash Masna has been way too focused on fish breeding. You cannot win the Aquarius of the Year award unless you bred a fish. You know, and that, those, those, those are great, but that's a different hobby in yeah. a sense. 99% of the revenue and action and discussion about the reef aquarium hobby is corals, is growing corals, is making reef tanks. It's not about breeding fish. That's a different hobby. It's as if we, you know, kept recognizing the seahorse people, which that used to happen. <laughs> seahorse people used to have an outsized presence in the reef aquarium hobby. I'm like, that's not reef aquariums. That's seahorse tanks. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. And so like with the controllers, it's, it's, it's interesting. There's a guy around the corner from me. His name is Jacob. He's got a crazy, crazy like submarine, nuclear submarine back room to control his 200-gallon tank. You know, the tank is fine. The tank is totally fine. But in the back room, there's just connections to everything. Mm-hmm. And he's he doesn't even just have like – float switches to tell him his reservoirs are full. He's got like that pressure sensitive safe tape to tell him what level his fresh and salt water reservoirs are at. You know what I mean? And so it's like that guy, he knows what he wants. He knows what he likes. He's into the control and the mission control room aspects. But you see his tank and you see the back room like, all right, that back room is substantially, substantially more full fleshed out than the tank itself. And that's fine because he actually owns it up front. He's like, I'm into the controllability. So I just don't want anybody to think, you know, there's all these messages coming from every different direction. The hobby's bigger than it's ever been, but there's these messages like, oh, you have to have a controller. I, dude, I watch live streams all, I try to watch live streams all the time. And there's guys that will spend an hour talking about control this, control this, control this, control this. And for an hour, they don't mention one fish Mm. They don't mention one coral. Yeah. They don't talk about the livestock, you know? So it's, it's fine if you own up to that being your hobby, but I like being in control. I am. That's why I don't have control. That's why. Yeah. No, I listen. I think I am the controller. I, um, I, I, I agree. You know, I think you can really go down a bad rabbit hole. If you have too many variables in play tied into a controller. I mean, I, you know, the way I use a controller is it's more of a monitor for me. I don't um, do a lot of controlling with it. You know, there's some, but, um, you know, for instance, with the cage director, what do we got there? Yeah, right. With the uh, with the cage director, you know, you could do the, uh, you know, adaptive control in terms of controlling your uh, dosing for two-part or, or controlling the, uh, the calcium reactor. And I've gone back and forth with that. And it's certainly very uh, practical in terms of being able to do that. And it can lock in your DKH by doing that, by using that kind of feature. But the reason why I wouldn't want to use that feature um, sometimes is because I like to kind of see what my tank is doing in terms of consuming. Is it consuming, you know, calcium and alkalinity um, like it should be? Is that alkalinity dropping, you know, gradually over time? Then I know the tank is healthy. If I'm doing the adaptive control, you know, I got to log in and I got to look at the data and stuff like that. And so I'm a bit lazy on that end. So, but that's just me. Yeah, so I'm just like flipping through these pages because, you know, before the Apex, there was the Aqua Controller Junior from Neptune Systems. But before that, it was all about the Octopus Aquadyne. I swear to God, there's an ad in here from the 1990s. Octopus Aquadyne does every single thing the Apex does today. 
for about $400. And it will even send you a message on your pager. <laughs> you know, there's pager. There's, Who has a pager these days? It's the same idea, yeah. right? Same freaking principle. It will alert you to problems. And it's just like, this is not, there's been no progress. If you look at consumer electronics and then you look at what's being charged for the controller stuff, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Consumer electronics have gotten faster, better, smaller, and cheaper. Meanwhile, in the aquarium hobby, it's like more expensive, harder to use, and more expensive and more expansive. And it's just, it's just, it's really frustrating because there isn't a middle ground right now because I've really been looking into this. There isn't a, like, I love monitors. I love the data, but there isn't a middle ground between a $20 pH probe, pH pen, and a four to $800, a full blown aquarium controller. You want those, there's a lot of monitors that will just, you know, show a display. But for, if you want logging, logging and Wi-Fi, any kind of smarts that kind of goes hand in hand. Right. And so it's just, it's ridiculous that there isn't a $100 wireless pH orp temperature Wi-Fi logger. Right. If you look at everything that our freaking cell phones can do, yeah. there is enough off the shelf components to build something like a raspberry Pi that will measure all that stuff reliably, web connected, log all that stuff for like a hundred bucks with room, you know, to put some meat on the bones for the person who makes it to make some money. Right. And it's just, it's just, that's, that's a disappointment part, right? All about monitoring. But I wish there were some companies who went all in on the monitoring side and didn't try to you know, make you buy into the, the whole ecosystem. Right, I got you. All right, Jake, I got um, I got one last question. I think it's going to be a short question for you. It's popped up a few times, so I, fi- I think we got to uh, run it up the flagpole there. Um, Ugly Man's Reefing, um, please ask Jake how his Australian Dallas Acro is going. Oh, man, that is one that I don't have anymore. Oh, bummer. You know, just, you know, growing pains, uh, starting out the studio, this and that. And the reason I haven't set up the 400 is because it took me a while to get the three coral flats going. And then it took me a certain amount of bandwidth to get some of the other displays going. And I want to make sure everything is rocking and rolling before I set up the 400. But, you know, there were some growing pains. And, you know, first year I'm just acquiring, acquiring, acquiring. I did share it with some people. Um, but... Um, I wasn't uh, achieving the level of growth that I had hoped for because I don't use a reverse osmosis unit. And of course I set my water off to um, be uh, tested with ICP analysis and came out zero. And little did I know that um, I get pulses of copper coming through my water. And um, for a while there, I thought I just was just good at growing acros and nothing else. And then I just started getting a little bit more critical with it. And then I found out that pulses of copper were kind of coming through my water. And so now I, again, I still don't have an RO. I address the one issue. So I have four very high capacity carbon blocks, each rated for 5,000 gallons per hour. So 20,000 gallons per hour, 5,000 gallons total. 
20,000 gallons for all four blocks. And then I have a flow meter that measures exactly how much water is coming out of there when it hits 5,000 gallons, which is a quarter of what those four blocks are capable of. I switch it up and I have zero copper issues and uh, no more uh, coral problems. But yeah, the Dallas Acro is right up there with, uh, you know, it's a piece of culture, like aquarium culture. Like I don't care you know what it costs but it's different from the slimer it's really cool though that it's a green staghorn style mm -hmm. acro that has that same uh, legacy as the stuber acropora in europe and the slimer in the united states so i don't have any slimer right now i actually have one piece of acro that's a bunch of encrusted pieces that could be the slimer mm. i've just i'm sorry the, the the dallas but i've lost track of what it actually is so i have to let all the little chunks grow back in and let it grow out but um i will definitely get some again cool because i shared it nice all right dude well listen this has been a a blast and i really hope you uh come back on because we got uh i think we got a lot of um things to talk about some more and and, and uh, i'm sure the folks would appreciate it but Thanks, Jake. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if I'm done, though. You're not done. Unless, no, I need to ask you. Some <laughs> oh, you're gonna ask me you some tell questions us about your tank. <laughs> yeah. So, how, where are you at in the cycling of your reef tank? It's cycle or the, the the maturation of your reef tank. The maturation. So it's. Um, I think it's about three and a half months in, and uh, I uh, it cycled in about a week, you know. So it was, uh, and I added fish about a week after that. So I added some four, four green chromas to the tank. And then um, a week after that, I actually added four tanks that I had in my frag tank that was leaking. So I had to um, do something. So I, so I had uh, I put more fish in there. And um, I've got about 20 fish in there right now. And How many corals have you got in there? Uh, zero. Why? I know. I, uh, I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready. I'm just taking it you, slow. Nothing good happens when you go quickly in a reef, uh, reef I know, keeping. but I add corals to my tanks like two days in oh yeah yeah there is no cycling that the corals need just there it's just that's just not a thing yeah like you can't to me otherwise i've literally been researching the topic for a while there's no mechanism by which corals can be harmed by ammonia like it's just not it, they they just it doesn't happen and i feel like i had this conversation with ryan bachelor bulk reef supply of you know, people who are adding more corals early on are actually having more success because the corals bring in the kind of biology that you need. And then you add the fish later. That's another thing that's infuriating right alongside the controllers. The same people cycle their reef tanks with fish for six, nine, 12 months and there's no corals in there. Like, dude, just throw the corals yeah. in, man. Yeah. The only thing you want to consider is like careful placement. Right. Careful grow out. Right. But man, I, I, you should, uh, you should Yeah, just... it's going gonna, it's gonna to be happening very, very soon. Um, it's been kind of tough to kind of look at that blank slate, but I've got, I've got a plan, believe you me, that, um, you know, the good thing is that I've got, I've got other corals that I've uh, been growing out, so I can kind of do some tester frags, which is great, right? I don't have to, like, risk buying new stuff and putting in that tank. I just want to make sure. There, 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 there is no risk. Yeah. I, I am telling you right now, I've done this dozens of times. The only problem you have down the road is introducing pests, right? So if you start with frags and you clean them up or you fresh cut them so it's just tissue, there is no risk. You you know what you're doing. Well, here right? here's here's stable, here's the one. Got water flow. You've got mineral you know management. What's the risk? Here's the one chink in the armor for me. I've never used LEDs before, so this is my first tank with LEDs. I've always used halides and T5s, so it's a um, it's a learning process for me. 
you know, I'm going to, I have um, six GHL Mitras over this tank. That's a, that's a very underrated light, I think. You know, I don't know if it's due to marketing or just, you know, GHL not being plugged into the American scene, but I have the original Mitras and I know it's gotten way better over time. That's an underrated light. I think you'll do very, very well with it. Yeah. And do you have, yeah, your tank is kind of wide, right? It's 36 inches wide. So you have two rows. I've of got them? two rows of um, three meters each row. Yeah. So that's that's really clutch, right? So one thing I'm seeing, so my tanks is they're eight feet long. I have four radions, and you know the light's bright enough for the acros right underneath. But then I have another tank where I have six. So I have three on each side. So you have that overlapping light that you're used to having from banks of T5s or huge metal halide reflectors. So when you have that overlapping light. That's where it's at. I'm, I'm surprised you went with, if you've never used LEDs before, what's on your frag tank? I have halides on the frag tank, but I have a, um, I have a new frag tank that's going to be plumbed, that is plumbed into the new tank. So I'm, I've got two separate systems now. So I'm going to have the, uh, I've got the new tank, which will be a separate system with a frag tank plumbed in. And then on my 187 gallon tank, I've got two frag tanks plumbed into that thing. And that's all halides. So one tip about the LEDs turn off the reds, turn off the greens, just to start. Like red is so potent. And even those cool whites, so potent, they can bleach some corals. Oh, yeah. I think it's just, I think it's just too much power matching up with that chlorophyll absorption spectrum. Um, so, I mean, you could put it on later on, but uh, you're probably like me, you probably like a more daylight spectrum, but start it out bluer, go, um, go a little easier on the cool white and just don't touch the reds, don't touch the green. The red is there to drive photosynthesis and bring out, it probably has hyper reds, which is really great for fish colors. The green is there mostly to balance out the red because if you only have red, it looks funky. Um, so yeah, it just def definitely turn those off or turn those down. Like on any of my tanks, man, I never run the reds more than peaking at like 30%. I mean, manufacturers now, they know each cluster is going to have one LED because it's so effective um but yeah man if i was at your house and we we're having some beers i'd be like let's load up, let's, load <laughs> let's, let's, let's get let's load up let's this get this party right started <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's just are you gonna do are you gonna do like one bomby at a time because that would be kind of cool do you have bombies what's a bomby just like a cluster oh cluster um I've, I've, got, like I've got i've got um i've got two islands so um okay. you know and and um that also have some like lagoons going off the islands if, if you can kind of imagine that. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's minimalistic, but, um, you know, what I, what I had, um, a buddy of mine actually telegram on, on YouTube and Instagram, great guy, Jim, um, um, did me solid. He essentially put together this uh, spectrum for the meters that mimic the, um, AB plus spectrum for the, uh, for the Ecotex and also, mimics the spectrum very closely for 250-watt um, radium bulbs as, uh, as well as 400-watt Hamilton bulbs. So it, 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 it's very close to the spectrum for those uh, halide bulbs. And, um, you know, because that's what I know. That's what I've been using in terms of the halide. So I kind of wanted to bring a little old school into the new school in terms of the LEDs and have that spectrum that I'm used to seeing. And, and yeah, I do like a whiter versus bluer look it's it's been strange because it, it is a bluer spectrum than what i'm running right now with my other tank so when i look at that that new tank 
and I see the blueness and I look over to the 187 gallon tank, which is being lit by 400 watt 20 K radiums. I'm like, wow, that's a big difference. And that's something that for me to have, have to get used to. But listen, it's nice to have a little variety too. Yeah. But you have your salinities locked in. Everything is locked in, you know, your temperature's locked in. You already have the calcium reactor set up. Cause I saw the video. Yeah. I would be more comfortable about adding acros to your tank than I would be if you're going to do any LPS. Are you going to do SPS totally? It's there. It's going to be dominant SPS. I'm going to have a um, a couple of um, LPS. I'm going to I'm going to put a big um, hammer coral that I have in my 187 gallon tank in that tank. I'm going to put a um, I've got some nice alvia pour that I'm going to put in a low flow section in between the islands probably in the new tank so there's gonna you know because i want to put some clownfish in there so i want to try to like get some things into the uh into the new tank that clownfish can host and um but it will be sps dominant so the you know the only thing that i gotta work on right now is my nutrients are a little high um you know my nitrates are 25 part per million in the uh, in the new tank and the, and the phosphates are 0.1 it's not bad you know and i got a uh, i got a pax bellum um, arid algae reactor that I got to fire up so I could, I could bring it down a little bit, but for the most part, things the, are pretty stable. The only thing that slows me down from packing a tank full of corals is the consideration that I give to where I'm going to put each coral and how it's going to interact with its neighbor has nothing to do with nutrients or time. As soon as, you know, your temperature stable, salinity stable, and you have some, I will put corals in a tank before I have the doser set up before the calcium reactor is going, because you know, there's a big enough volume there, a big enough, uh, a resource for, you know, then you can add that stuff later, but you have, man, if we we're at your house, we'd be having an aquascaping party. <laughs> I would be more gun shy about putting in the hammer and any kind of trackies and chalices than acros or apostle ports. Just go to town, man. Or at the very least, like always put in a small indicator yeah. coral on day two. Yeah. You know, just you watch the polyps expand and yeah. just it's you know, it's gonna relate almost as much information as like reading all the the levels. But uh but yeah, man, you should definitely like and if you have frag tanks, like 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 me, you have the same kind of thing going yeah. on. I have three four by eight flat front flats, and I go over there, and that's my paints that I use on my aquarium canvases. And the only thing that slows me down from putting corals everywhere is where are they gonna go? Yeah, Greg Carroll is asking me if, if I'm gonna go A B plus, why not go with the original? I you know I just want a little old school in there. That's all. That's all, Greg. I just want that little old school halides hybrid spectrum in there so that's um i don't know you're probably right it's probably not going to make a hell of a difference you know greg is right in that ab plus almost doesn't mean anything to me like it's you're always going to tweak your spectrum no one's going to unless you're totally hands-off hobbyist you're not going to just set that spectrum and leave it but you get so used to whatever like you have whatever color you have and, you know, intensity is a little bit different game and the spread is important for coral capture, but you get so used to that color. Um, I'm actually really curious to see how you come out with the Mitris because, you know, every manufacturer has like, all right, so say Ecotech Marine has Royal Blues and Mitris has Royal Blues. They're not the exact same Royal yeah. Blues. Even if they're Cree, they're, they, there's five different bins for every single wavelength emission peaks. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And so, like, it's going to be really different. So if you start out with AB+, like, I still encourage you to just tweak it, just eyeball it, you know, with 
with your eyes. That's the real old school. Not taking spectrographs. Like I've seen, uh, who was it? Um, I build my LED. God, I miss those guys, man. They made some great freaking strip lights. You can make everything you want. They had a radium spectrum one that looked nothing like a radium. I absolutely believe that the spectrograph that it put out, that it created, matched what a radium did. But to your eyes, it just it did not look like a radium. They had like greens and different shades of reds and all kinds of purples in there. I'm like that. I'm yeah, sorry, no, you could not... you could tell distinctly what a radium lit tank looks like, for sure. Yeah, yeah. ACI uh, Chris from ACI Culture. When are you taking calls from the audience? <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing we're kind of missing at the Reef Aquarium shows, and I think. It'll come back in force, you know, when we have real reef shows, real regional and national and international reef shows, um, just just talking reef, you know, just really comparing notes. Um, so, yeah, I know Chris is great because like, you know, him and I, we, chat, we, we just bounce ideas off of each other. And that's so much better for hashing out what you think, you know. You know, and so he's doing certain things and I'm doing certain things to kind of get to the same place. And we're finding what works for us. And um, definitely with your Mitris LEDs, like I'm, I'm the light that they put off, it's no different from a metal halide or a T5. But the spread that they produce yes. is very different. But I am so glad that you have two rows because you're going to have almost like a hybrid system between having you know three metal halide pendants versus a bank of t5s your tank is gonna rock yeah i think so it's i think uh, i was considering doing some t5 supplements but i was like you know um i i, I didn't want to get too crazy and and i wanted that clean look so i just uh, i thought that the two rows of the three would uh, would work and you know i did some par readings on the uh, on the lights and i got some sick par readings on those things like you know four to five hundred par readings in the upper part of the uh on, on the tank in between the island in between the fixtures so i was real happy with that um and i've never taken par readings of any of my tanks and and uh, so they're, they're higher than what i'm getting out of my halides right now over my uh, my other tanks. i only take par measurements when i know that i'm at opposite extremes of light intensity you know personally from experience that you know a certain acro can do so much better at 250 micromoles with t5s coming from every direction and saturating every single branch versus 500 micromoles coming straight down from metal halide or like you know a really directional led light so that's another one i'm just like people ask me par values all the time like this is not informative to you i could tell you numbers but for example you have apogee makes five different meters you know and they have one that's specially tuned for aquarium use and then they have a correct uh, immersion coefficient and most people are just sticking in the water and they forget about the immersion coefficient and then i have a light core par meter that is a spherical sensor that measures light coming from every single direction that is you can do science with that you can't do science with the apogee one you know what I mean? Like the Apogee is a prosumer at best. Right. Um, but I, 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 I'm still just like, I'm glad you have two banks of LEDs because you're going to get that overlap that your Estonies are going to totally freaking love. Do you have them turned in just a little bit? I do not. I mean, I, I probably could do that if I wanted to, but the coverage on the on the lights is awesome. I mean, I'm not, I don't have any, um, you know, shading whatsoever. So it's... I just like to turn them in. You know, I want to uh, leave no photons yeah. behind. I don't want it to spill out of the tank. But also... Just get a little less light on falling on your glass so you don't have to scrub right. it as often. Yeah, yeah. 
Sounds like a smart uh, idea. Yeah. So I'm psyched. I'm I'm psyched. You know, you're right. It's time. <laughs> so I know I know you're trying to get off, but uh, I I still want to talk about the coral prices. All right. So right now, everybody knows people aren't flying around, right? So the price of freight has gone through the roof. Yes. So two things. One, the price of freight is very expensive. But two, because there's fewer flights, a lot of shipments have to take circuitous paths. They can't necessarily go boom, boom. They have to go boom, 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 boom. And then it just adds to the overall freight cost of the corals. And so if you're a coral importer, you don't want to stack $20 worth of freight fees on top of a, you know, a, a bubble coral that lands for 10 bucks, right? So what do you do? You buy only the super fancy choice stuff. So I've been window shopping like crazy for like two weeks. And unless it's, uh, you know, just super basic common stuff that's locally grown, the wholesale prices are reaching retail levels, you know? And so hmm. that's one of those things that is not forever. The, the collectors and the importers are focusing on the ultra ultra. I mean, if you go to some of these coral vendors pages, you will see hyper ultra or mega ultra rare. And you're just <laughs> like, how can you put rare on every coral? Or how can you put ultra rare on 12 cinderinas that you have in stock? Like you have 12 cinderinas in stock. They're not ultra rare if you have ultra rare on all of them, right? So you definitely have this, uh, this situation right now where it makes a lot more economic sense for the importers to only bring in the super crazy stuff. But if corals are very expensive, you can call up any of these companies or any stores and say, hey, what's not selling right now? You know, unless it's paramount to you to be in the club because you bought mm. the crazy fraggle tenuous for $500 and you want great looking frags that grow out to be muddy colonies. Um, call people up, man. Call If you're a store, call up wholesalers. Like, what's not selling? Yeah. You know, yeah. give me some of that because every – Average coral in the peak of health is going to look just as good across the room as, you know, say a, a rainbow tenuous or a hyper-colored millie. So this is a temporary situation, and it's definitely going to be up to all of us to push back on some of those crazy coral prices. Be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Turbinaria, a cup coral, small colony, I don't care where it's from, should be about 60 bucks. You know, maybe 80 yeah. bucks if it's really great looking. Don't just offer me yellow scroll corals for $150. The hobby was not built on that. And it's going to be, I think, really important to all of us to to give a little bit of pushback on all this hyper, the hyper coral trend. But like, yo, I want some supporting actors, right? I have some sick, crazy looking scalemias in my scalemia party aquarium. That's an awesome um, tank. But I... It's it, dude. I wish I could sh you could see it in real life because, like, as soon as I'm done filming, I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> how many tanks I have here, and how many times that tank stops me in my tracks when I walk mm. by? But now, I don't want master scolies. I don't want crazy stuff. I need a couple basic UFOs. I need a couple button scolies. I need a couple Micromusa Pacificos to make it a balanced thing. If the entire wall is all crazy ultra corals. None of them will stand out. And I feel that's the same thing in the aquarium hobby. You know, prices, first of all, not all coral prices are, are through the roof. 
only through the roof coral prices make the headlines, right? Yeah. No one is promoting their Galaxia frags for 20 bucks because they're not going to get any attention for their $20 Galaxia frags. You know what I'm saying? Right? There is a ton there, but we just see the, the veneer of supporting actor. Like, it's like apparel. No one is excited about socks, right? They just want to show off their blouser, their blazer, or their hat, or their fly kicks. But the socks get no mention. You know, socks are never going to cost more than 10, 20 bucks if they're really, really fancy. And I feel that's the same way with corals. And, you know, for those of people who want some more affordable corals, go to your mom and pop shops. Go to the non-reef shops that just happen to have a saltwater tank because, man, one of the best freshwater aquarium stores in town, they have a, a couple frag tanks with like eight-foot VHOs. I have no idea where they got those. <laughs> and they buy random frags from the wholesalers that are made in, in like factory line. No one has the time or the attention to really examine the detail of all these corals. But once they've been sitting at that freshwater fish store – for one to three months, you really know what you're getting. And you know what? There's three frags for $45. When I want some cheap frags, I go to the freshwater fish store. And they're diamonds in the rough, to, you know, sometimes. They're diamonds in the rough, yeah, for sure. And there's just, the lords have been sitting there in high nutrients because they have a, mm -hmm. you know, janky protein yeah. skimmer. They also have lower light. So the corals are mega puffy. So yeah, you want some cheap corals? Like, Go to your mom and pop shop that you would never think to go to, right? The reef stores, they know how much they can charge for this and that. But I find so many great what I call used fish and used corals that have been traded in and got too big. Man, sometimes I'll get a big old chunk of coral for like 50 bucks because yeah. the store, they don't know. What, and sometimes I will offer them more than they're asking. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so that's that's one way to do it, and uh, I know it's getting a little late on on your end, but uh, definitely gonna be uh, hounding you a little bit to get some corals. Yeah, yeah, there. no, I I need it, and I appreciate it. A hey, remarkable reefs. Many thanks for the contribution. Really, really appreciate that. Uh, your buddy Chris from ACI is uh, saying good advice there, Jake. But then he said, uh, what was the uh, the other comment? Uh, Just tell him to stop talking, sounding like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's all pent up because I haven't been able to go to reef shows and like talk to folks and you get a platform. Like I don't, I don't want to have my own live streams, man. That's boring. Well, I feel like I just talk to the. You're ether. welcome anytime on this uh, show, here, Jake. Let me, let me say that. So. Listen, dude, thank you so much for uh, for being a part of this. Really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, anybody just uh, any more questions, drop uh, drop some comments in the chat and uh, we'll try to get it to Jake if he doesn't see it himself. But listen, thanks, man. Really appreciate it. Next week, I got another great guest um, next Thursday, February 11th, 7 p.m. I got Julian Sprung coming on. So, oh boy. Yeah, so that's, I'm going to be hassling you with like super chats and you guys, you know, we work so hard to create content. Everybody who's watching this, you know, throw us a few bucks to buy a beer. Like, you know, it's, it, it, it's reward enough to sit here and talk reef. I'll do this all day long for a roof over my head, but like just throw out a few bucks. It's, it's not about the money. It's just about, you know, showing someone that you value what's going down. So I'm going to be annoying the crap out of you with Super Chats and Julian's next week. I got to come up with one really good question All for right. Julian. It's going to make Oh, yeah now so but uh, you know shout out to everybody who who participated in the chat who threw out the super chat i want to say hi to my buddy greg carroll and chris meckley uh chris will be a great guy to have on, he's, on he's, he's coming on 
keep him focused on one topic because <laughs> him and I, we, we, uh, we, I think we hesitate to pick up the phone from each other because we know it's a, it's a half hour to an hour ordeal. Try to pick on one thing specifically for, for Chris, especially probably like the culturing of corals because he's really like laser focused in on that lately. And uh, look at that. You just got a $10 super chat from John Reefer Vermont. Oh, I didn't even see that. Thank you so much. Oh, there we go. Oh, yeah. And reefing with O. Thanks. Awesome. Oh, I think I think we need to keep. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're saying all the right things, Jake. <laughs> well, listen, um, dude, I'll let you go, and um, I appreciate it again. And until uh, next week, everybody, be well, be safe, and we'll see you next time. Make sure to tune in next week for Julian Sprung because I'll definitely yeah. be in the chat and I'll answering questions and pestering the audience then. Awesome. So thanks for having me, Keith, and uh, we'll catch you on the flip. All right, man. Thanks, Jake. Later. All right, later.